0: and a half admins episode 93 i'm joe i'm jim and i'm alan and here we are again and before we get started another plug for bsd can 2022 which is online right now as you hear this yeah Uh, so when this comes out we'll be in the second day of the tutorials but the talks will be friday and saturday so if you're not too late downloading the podcast you can check out the main bulk of the conference live online right well link in the show notes as usual so, Jim, you've been testing out Beehive, which is the FreeBSD hypervisor.
1: I have. For those of our listeners who don't know, I am a big fan of the Linux kernel virtual machine, KVM, and the associated tooling around that that makes it incredibly easy to spin up your own virtual machines on relatively capable physical hosts and migrate them from machine to machine and basically alleviate a lot of the ills specifically of running Windows. If I never had to support anything but Linux and FreeBSD, I probably honestly never would have started caring about virtualization, which would have been a mistake on my part because it has a lot of advantages. But the biggest one to me is making your operating system, and your apps, the entire stack, sort of a self-contained bubble that isn't welded to one particular machine set of hardware. Linux and BSD pretty much are that already anyway, but Windows, man, it digs in and nests and does not like to be moved and it's a giant pain in the butt. Anyway, that's virtualization in general. I've been using KVM for quite some time. I want to say since uh, 2007 in production, but I had never gotten my feet wet with Beehive, which is FreeBSD's much newer hypervisor. For the first few, I think, years, Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, Beehive was only virtualizing FreeBSD guests. But now that's no longer the case. You can virtualize Windows guests, Linux guests, and I assume quite a few arbitrary weird things.
2: Yeah. So for the very beginning, it was mostly just FreeBSD on FreeBSD and then Linux as well. But for the first quite a while before the introduction of the UEFI stack, there was no graphic driver at all. So it was serial only. Which worked great for BSD and Linux, but when you wanted to run Windows, you needed some kind of graphics. Like I think eventually somebody got that one version of Windows that's designed to run over serial,
1: mm-hmm. I and mean, like they could install it somewhere else and then convert the image or something. But it was a problem. Although I will go ahead and say that for an awful lot of people. Even non Windows people saying, "Oh, it's great to just do it all over serial." is is not really <laughs> a, a true statement. No,
2: it was mostly just you could do it. Right, you know,
1: get the OS installed and get it running enough
2: that you could SSH in and do whatever you needed to do. You know, again, this was more virtualization, but for server type workloads, not it wasn't at that point something you would do on your desktop. Really,
1: one of the things now that I really like about Beehive is uh, the the development community around Beehive has invested pretty heavily. In some areas, they they have reinvented and done their own thing in the architecture, chasing better performance and less legacy dependency than older solutions like KVM have. And Alan is, frankly, much better equipped to talk to you about the details of that. But everything hasn't been a case of not invented here syndrome. The Beehive Dev community has invested very heavily in making everything work with VirtIO, which is the same virtual hardware stack that is supported under KVM. And uh, the VertIO is a high performance, it's not pretending to be actual physical hardware, it's drivers designed specifically around creating virtual storage controllers and virtual network adapters and the like. And when you run the IO hardware, it, it frees you that much more from the underlying hardware on the host. And it also is generally considerably higher performance because it's not trying to emulate weird functions that make sense on like an actual bare metal network card, but make no sense whatsoever in something that's just a driver that's bridging you out to a real network card somewhere.
2: Yeah, like in the beginning, there was like, especially VMware and so on, you would almost always emulate the lowest common denominator like 100 megabit network card mm-hmm. because every os had the driver for that built in and it, it just made things better but eventually you're you're emulating a pci not pcie NIC, and it's just a bunch more work and you're emulating all these interrupts and it it was just messy and then virtio seemed like a great solution of what if we made a driver that did the absolute minimum of just shuffling the packets to the host and then let the host deal with it?
1: The point that I was trying to get to is the fact that the Beehive community embraced VertIO rather than spinning off and doing their own thing. It opens the doors for, and we're still in the early days for this, but a lot of really interesting convergence where you can have a hybrid stack. You can have FreeBSD and Beehive hosts intermingled with Linux and KVM hosts you know, in the same overarching pool of virtualization, and you'll be able to move virtual machines in between. Now, this is still very early days for this. You can do VertIO storage on FreeBSD, but at the moment, it's not the best performing option. I saw better performance out of emulated NVMe than out of VertIO. It does work quite well for the network adapter there, VirtIO network. And there's even the beginnings of support for Manager, the same tool that, uh, originally Red Hat Drive tool that I use and love to manage my Linux virtual machines. It's available on FreeBSD. And also, interestingly, The version of Manager in the newest Ubuntu LTS 2204, it can actually connect to a Beehive host and it understands the Beehive protocol, not just the KVM protocol. So to a degree, you can manage a VM on a FreeBSD Beehive machine from your Linux KVM workstation. Now, that's not production ready yet. You generally can't get graphical support working. It's difficult to even get the machines to fully boot Invert Manager on Beehive itself. But still, you can see that the groundwork has been laid. It's very exciting times.
2: Yeah, and you know, it's it's led to a couple of interesting things, like the fact that Beehive just never had support for floppy drives. Meant that you know when there was that big QMU vulnerability that affected Zen and QMU KVM and even Amazon that, you know, there was a a bug in the floppy emulation that meant you could do this and that and escape the VM or
1: whatever. It just wasn't a thing. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't that only a problem if you actually gave your VM a virtual floppy drive to begin with?
2: Well, I think QMU defaulted to having a floppy drive, partly because some older machines just assumed there would always be an A drive, even if it wasn't, if it returned disk not Mm. present. Mine never defaulted to that. So like the hardware was there, even if it didn't have an image in it.
1: Hmm. It was weird. That is weird. So I've been doing some testing, some performance testing, as well as just some figuring out how the heck to use this thing. And like I said, right now, Vert Manager is not really usable on Beehive. That is definitely coming. I think it'll be here within the next year or 2 it You'll probably be ready to truly run VMs on. For right now, your best bet is either going to be to start and invoke your VMs entirely from the command line with like paragraph long invocations full of arguments like the early days of Versh on Linux with KVM or better yet to use a package called VMBehive. Now VMBehive works with uh, you know a, a text-based configuration file that is very similar in format to the XML files that uh, you use under the hood over on the KVM side like if you use virt manager. What you're actually doing is you're creating an XML file that lives in Etsy libvirt qemu on a linux machine and defines all the virtual hardware of a VM from how many CPU cores you're giving it to what the topology of them is, to the network, to the storage, to the, you name it, it all lives in that XML file. VM beehive does the same thing with similarly constructed files and they're pretty human readable. You can go in and you can edit them. There is still, I think some real documentation work left to be done right now. You're kind of left diving through a whole bunch of man pages, trying to find the proper syntax and, um, It's tough. It's extra tough if you don't have Alan Jude on hand to just, you know, jump into Slack and and ask questions of. But we're going to try to improve on that uh, at Clara in the near future and do kind of a zero to being productive with Beehive on FreeBSD. One of the things that we could expand on with that
2: is uh, Beehive has a couple of interesting ways that it boots. So in the early versions of Beehive, there was a separate thing called uh, Beehive-load which is basically the FreeBSD bootloader recompiled as a user space app that you would use to like stage the kernel in the VM's memory. And it meant you could do some interesting things, including basically NFS boot the VM, but without a, a network, basically. And so you could map a local directory to be what you booted from. So if you're testing kernel changes or something, you could boot the VM off a directory on your host very quickly and then when you crash it, you just overwrite the files on your host and reboot again and and it made it really handy for development. And the more and more stuff like that is happening. Like There's a, a nascent plan 9 file system driver coming there. And in head, Beehive has support for pause migration. So if you can actually freeze the machine and migrate it to another host, that's not built in and not compiled by default, but the code lives in the tree now and is, is coming there. And then Once that's stabilized, we get to moving that forward a bit more to being able to do live migrations and also support for the virtualization hardware offload on ARM 64 servers uh, to be able to run VMs there as well. And a bunch of other interesting stuff like that is coming. And also to try to address the uh, paragraph-long command line invocations to specify all the hardware that's going to go in this, it sounds like we're finally getting close to the work I started I don't know, it must have been like seven years ago of, of Beehive having a, a, a native config file format where it can actually communicate all the things about the disks and the other hardware and so on that's, that's in the VM because it turns out we needed a format we could serialize that to in order to do live migration. You have to tell the other side all of the configuration of the VM
0: itself as well. So Jim, what's the bottom line here? Is there any chance of you switching to FreeBSD
1: and Beehive instead of Linux? And not in the near future, no. Now, eventually, maybe, but uh, right now the the scaffolding and the tooling is not really there. It's significantly more primitive working with VM Beehive than working with Vert Manager because, although it's it's very usable, and it I think it will be more so once we've got some proper documentation that really walks people through it. You know, from from zero to production. Just as an example, like if you just want to spin up a VM and get a graphical console on it so you can walk your way through the installer just like you're installing onto a bare metal machine, which an awful lot of admins are going to want, myself included – It is absolutely doable, but the way that you do that on Beehive right now is you configure your VM and you start your VM and then you have to know what port it's running a VNC on and you run just a bog standard VNC viewer. Um, I was using the uh, the Tiger VNC viewer because that was the first thing that came up in a package search on FreeBSD. And uh, it absolutely works, but, you know, compared to having this one single application that does everything and brings up the console in the application and has like its built in menus to do things like I send control alt delete to irritating Windows server VMs that require that to log in. That was one of my first paper cuts with Beehive, which has nothing to do with Beehive, but the Tiger VNC viewer, it does have an option to do that. But you kind of have to be paying attention when you first start up and know what it means when it says press F8 for the context menu. I mistakenly thought that was something Beehive was telling me. It was actually something Tiger VNC was telling me. And if you press F8, then you get a menu that pops up that allows you to, among other things, send a Control-Alt-Delete key press. Now, this is extra irritating to dive into for the first time because if you don't know exactly... What you're doing already, and you just start Googling, like, you know, how do I send a Control Alt Delete through VNC? Well, the answer is different for everybody's VNC viewer. A lot of them you can just press Shift Control Alt Delete. Some you just press Control Alt Delete and it gets captured. And if you're just asking, how do I do this in VNC? You get a million wrong answers. I actually never even came across the documentation on Tiger VNC's context menu, I just eventually noticed the press F8 and tried it to see what it would do.
2: Yeah, definitely a lot more paper cuts of the fact that you were starting with Windows. Because, you know, if you're just doing an install of Ubuntu or something and, and happen to have the right image that can do it over serial, then it just
1: kind of happens, it, it seems a lot easier. but Well, sure, if you're expecting to do that over serial and you've got all the infrastructure for doing it over serial and you know what you're doing with that. Now, actually, installing Windows was less of a pain in the butt for me under Beehive than Linux or FreeBSD were because when you use the template option for VM Beehive, Linux defaults to a Grub loader that does not spawn a VNC listener, and FreeBSD still uses the the Beehive loader, which also does not spawn a VNC listener. So I kind of had to figure out arbitrarily, like go look at the VM config files that I had for my working. Windows VM and notice, oh, hey, this one says the loader is, you know, Yuffie and the others say different things. Well, what happens if I just change that around? Oh, hey, I changed that to eufy and now it spawns, you know, a a VNC listener that I can connect to with a viewer and and now everything's hunky dory. Right. Well, the other one is if you run VM console, it'll just connect you to a
2: text console where you can (laughs) run the installer and it's easy. But yeah, some of this has to do with the fact that, you know, tools are written when Yuffie wasn't available yet. It wasn't a thing yet. And then it got added in, and all the tooling, you know, didn't change all the defaults to it right up from underneath you. But yeah, there are still some, some paper cuts in a couple of places. But I think this will probably be most useful is, is kind of what you were talking about, especially as like Vert Manager gets more to it. If you're building a big infrastructure and you have a lot of VMs, there's some advantage of having half of them run something different. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, if there is a vulnerability in KVM or the Linux kernel or the FreeBSD kernel or whatever, it can only take out some fraction of your infrastructure because you have that diversity built in and it can make a big difference. And, you know, we mentioned it before, but like Ferrisign, the company that runs the dot com top-level domain, they make sure they have multiple DNS server programs and multiple operating systems and all the combinations of those so that when there is a problem, it only takes out X percent of their infrastructure and they know that they're going to maintain the uptime of being able to resolve .com domains because if they ever don't, there will be hell to pay.
1: Well, I also love the idea that eventually I'll be able to have a mixed pool of Beehive and, and KVM hosts that I can move virtual machines in between and use Vert Manager to manage the entire stack much the way that I already use it to you know manage a pretty wide variety of Linux KVM hosts in, in various locations. In addition to the InfoSec or all your eggs in one basket thing, there's just hypervisors are really complex beasts and I'm not going to spoil the benchmarking stuff that I've done that we'll be publishing at Clara. Other than I will say that the answer to which hypervisor is faster is different depending on which guest operating system you want to run in it and which particular task is your major task. The hypervisor that's faster with storage is not necessarily the one that's faster with network, is not necessarily the one that's faster with CPU. And, you know, even within those answers, if you're running Windows or you're running Linux or you're running FreeBSD, the answers are different as to which host gives you the best performance on those tasks. So it's kind of neat to think that as the the admin, the tools that I really interact with directly, like all the time to push button, make widget go, can be the same, but the back end can be whatever performs the best for exactly the thing that I'm looking to do. And or, you know, as personally a mercenary sysadmin, I love the idea that I can take on, you know, an absolute FreeBSD only everywhere customer, right alongside Linux-only customers, and use the same tools to manage both. And, you know, with just a minimum amount of friction between the two. And like I said, we're not there yet, but that roadmap looks pretty clear and I believe it's going to happen. Okay,
0: this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25a, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offer 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can find out more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan, or your feedback, or anything really, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, James writes, I've got a question about being able to access my home network from my business and business from home. To be clear, I'm self-employed and only I have access to my business network. There's no employees to worry about. I have a server running at both locations which acts as a DNS resolver amongst other things, but isn't a gateway slash router. At present, any service or file I need to access in the other location has to be exposed in some way via the internet. For instance, for file sharing, I mount directories via SFTP and SSH. For some web dashboards, I access them via HTTPS and basic auth. This is working fine, but ideally, I'd like to have some way of bridging my home and business network together as one flat LAN. I know of services like TailScale, but that requires having each device configured. Is there an easy way to join the two networks together without having to configure individual devices? What would you recommend? Wireguard.
1: Yeah, correct. Now if there were multiple devices in play like, you know, laptops and whatever, I I might suggest uh, looking into um Nebula rather than Wireguard, but for something simple like what he's describing, Wireguard is absolutely the correct answer. It sounds like James might not be that familiar with how this stuff works. Um, it's not ever going to be one flat LAN, but what you can do is you can set up static routes between the two separate subnets. So the way this is going to work is you set up a wire guard tunnel on each end. The WireGuard tunnel has its own subnet. The LAN on the home side has its own subnet, and the business side has a third subnet. And what you do is on each of the LANs, you set up a static route, on that router to route traffic destined for either the tunnel subnet or the other side's LAN subnet through the machine that's hosting the tunnel. And once you've done that, Bob's your uncle, everything works. Everything on either network can reach everything on the other network. Now you might want to think about maybe not making it quite that all encompassing. Maybe you do want to reach every single machine on the business network no matter what, but maybe you do want that to only be one machine on your LAN rather than, you know, potentially having like your kids iPad being able to touch your production servers at work. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Just, you know, consider the kids laptop from school gets ransomware and wants to spread it. You don't want that getting to your business computer.
1: You literally just have the WireGuard tunnel there terminate like, you know, on your home computer there, the one that you sit in front of and use. That's the simplest way.
2: Yeah. So basically, I would say put WireGuard on the machines you have as your DNS resolver. And then, yeah, it's just a matter of logging into whatever routing gateway device you have at each end and telling it, hey, to get to the WireGuard network or the office network, forward the packets to the computer that is the DNS resolver at home and then vice versa in the office. And that takes care of it without having to go and change what the default route on all your machines is or anything you're not replacing your gateway with with your dns resolver or anything you're just saying you know once a packet gets to your router for this weird network we don't know about oh that's forward it to the dns machine that's running wireguard because it knows how to get to
1: the office network that doesn't need to be a dns machine like any machine works well, no,
2: it's, he he has those two machines and they just seem Gotcha. I, I figured the way he mentioned them is it, that would be the machines you'd want to use to to make the VPN tunnel. But yeah, it can be any machines.
1: Fair. I just yeah, we're, we we don't want to conflate that unnecessarily with the right. DNs because they don't really <laughs> belong together. Um, whatever server you've got on either end is is fine for the task. The important part is that you're going into the router and you're looking for its static gateway functionality because it sounds like we're probably going to be talking about like commercial soho router stuff here. Mm-hmm. Netgear's routers all support this just fine. I'll warn you ahead of time, TP-Links tend not to. Uh, TP-Link routers tend to support something they call static routing, but it's wildly broken. And at least when I tried to report that to their support and walk their developers through the issue, they just argued with me that it wasn't supposed to work, basically. So it's still broken, but all the Netgear stuff works. Linksys routers that have static router functionality, um, all of those have worked in my testing. Generally, if something says static route, it will work. And what you'll do is you'll say on your server, it works handling the VPN tunnel. Uh, When you set up your static route, you say any traffic destined for the tunnel subnet or for the other LAN subnet, I want you to route that to the LAN IP address of the WireGuard server in here in this network. And at that point, Everything just goes through. Now, like if that's a Linux server that you've installed WireGuard on Linux or BSD, um, you know you'll also need to enable gatewaying on that machine, which means you know being willing to forward packets from one subnet to the other. But uh, there there are quite a few guides on that. It's it's not that difficult to do. You know, even for some poor person security, and like instead of setting up the static route on your router in your home, uh, it's pretty easy to define static routes individually on individual machines if you set up the gateway service on your local machine, one local machine at the house, and you tell that machine, yes, you should forward packets between interfaces, you can still do everything where you can have multiple machines route traffic through there. It's a little bit security by obscurity because anybody who knows to set up the static route through that particular machine can then forward the packets. But it does at least machi- mean, again, that like just random, any device that like you know your kid's friend brings over and connects to the Wi-Fi with isn't suddenly going to be able to touch prod at work, which is not what you want.
2: Yeah, I basically have something like this that uh, across the point-to-point link I have to connect a certain VLAN at my house to the, the management VLAN with all the IPMI of all the servers at our data center because it just was important to be able to reach those even if the internet isn't working.
0: Mark writes, just looking at building a VMware ESXi server to learn VMware and have an enterprise test LAN, so looking at 16 cores total, After doing some research, it seems the best way to go about this is an old enterprise server since ESXi is so picky about hardware, apparently. I'm currently looking at an HP ProLiant DL380P G8TU, and I'm wondering about the storage, as I'm unfamiliar with the nuances of enterprise hardware. It comes with an HP SmartArray P420i SAS controller, which is backwards compatible with SATA by looking at the spec sheet. To keep the noise down, I'm looking at putting in two 2.5-inch SSDs in RAID 1. Is there any reason to go with a SAS SSD or an enterprise-grade SATA SSD, or is a regular consumer-grade SATA SSD fine? I'm not concerned about write endurance for my use case. I'll also be running a VM to learn ZFS. Not sure at this point whether it'll be Ubuntu or Zigma NAS. Same question here, but regarding 3.5-inch spinning rust, can I go with regular consumer-grade SATA NAS drives like WD Red? Or should I go with a SAS drive? It would be for use with large multimedia files.
1: Two and a half inch SSDs in RAID 1 is fine. Uh, as far as you know, whether you're going enterprise or just regular consumer grade, the majority of the concern there is about write endurance. And you say that that's not an issue. I will say that even though you say write endurance is an issue, don't use teeny tiny ones. If you're going to have VMs on this, you want your minimum size to be like a terabyte if you're going consumer SSDs, which these days is not a whole lot of money. I mean, you can get one terabyte SATA SSDs for under 150 bucks lately. Now, there will be some performance considerations here if you have, particularly if you have like quite a few VMs. Consumer SSDs don't have any QoS applied, so you can have uh, much higher latency spikes when you have lots of processes competing for the underlying storage at once, where enterprise drives, they typically will have QoS, and they'll smooth all that out and distribute the latency more evenly. The other thing is there is a performance concern in that if you have a sync-write heavy workload, the consumer SSDs do not have power loss protection and therefore hopefully they're not returning from a write barrier, you know, like a sync call. They're not returning from F-Sync until the data is actually all the way down on the middle, whereas enterprise drives with power loss protection can return from F-Sync as soon as the data is in the onboard RAM cache. So we're talking orders of magnitude faster. But as long as you don't mind the potential performance, extra quirkiness, like it's not just to like slow everything down X percent, It's more just that the latency is a lot more bursty. You're less sure of what you're going to get.
2: It'll be more uneven.
1: Yeah. If you're not saturating it all the time, you probably won't notice. If you're okay with that, then you're okay with that, and that's fine. So I would say most likely, yeah, go with the consumer stuff. I will recommend that you at least shop some enterprise stuff, though, like uh, Kingston DC 500Ms or uh, the, the lower enterprise grade of Samsung SSDs. They're not that expensive anymore. You can save a couple of hundred bucks this way. And if you want to save that couple of hundred bucks, I think it's okay given your use case, but it's only a couple hundred bucks. The only time you care about
2: SAS SSDs is if you're doing multipath and you're not doing that at home and you're not doing that with an
1: old DL380. So yeah, you don't need to worry about SAS at all. So the next question, uh, running the VM to learn ZFS and can Mark use 3.5 inch rust consumer grade? Or should he go with SAS drive? Now, here's the funny thing about that. Mark used an example of a consumer-grade SATA NAS drive, WD-RED. Well, if you buy a WD-RED right now, you are not getting a good NAS drive because the WD-RED is an SMR drive. Uh, The SMR drives perform particularly horribly with ZFS, but they're not great with conventional RAID either. They're basically just not great. I would not recommend those. So on the Western Digital side, you're at a minimum going to need Red Plus, which is what the WD Red used to be. Uh, The Red Plus and the Red Pro are all CMR. However, this is the point where I will put in my pitch for Seagate, who has pissed me off a lot less in the last 10 years. Although I, I refused to buy Seagate for a long time because of sins of theirs from the early 2000s. But in this era right now, Seagate has not tried to shoehorn SMR technology into their NAS drives. They did do that to their desktop ones, but the Iron Wolf is their NAS line, and you cannot buy a crappy Iron Wolf drive for NAS use. They don't make them. Iron Wolf and Iron Wolf Pro—they're both very good. You can use them. You can trust them. Rock with that. Now that's as low as you want to go. You absolutely do not want to go. Oh, look how cheap I can get that Seagate Barracuda drive you know, look how cheap I can get that WD Blue or that WD Red non-plus. Uh-uh, nope, nope, nope. Stay away from all that crap. You absolutely want a NAS drive minimum. No, you just want to buy cheap USB drives on them. No. <sighs>
2: <laughs> the only other concern I really have there is I'm not that familiar with that P420i uh, SAS controller and whether it will work in like an IT mode where it'll just pass the disks through. But it sounds like he wants to use hardware RAID one for the... SSDs for the OS or whatever for the ESXi part and that makes sense. But if he's going to do the three and a half inch drives and wants to pass those through as whole drives into the Zigma NAS VM, just want to make sure that the controller is actually able to pass through the whole drive and not require you to make a bunch of RAID zeros or something to to pass the drives through.
1: Yeah, now the concern there is um, if you have a controller that is really designed to be a RAID controller specifically and doesn't have a host bus adapter mode that passes through the, the raw full drive. The big concern is that ZFS loses the ability to control exactly when the data hits the disk and you have possibilities of corruption that would not have existed if ZFS had had a proper host bus adapter and it got to manage everything. Now, with that said, that doesn't suddenly make ZFS less reliable than a normal file system where you don't really worry about that. It just decreases, you know, your your delta in how reliable it is versus simpler conventional file systems. And Mark did say this is to learn ZFS. So I'll go ahead and say, I mean, yeah, even if you have to make the rate, the individual RAID zeros, you got my blessing for that for a learning system. It's fine. Learn on that. Just understand that in production, you wouldn't want to use that same hardware. The biggest concern there is some of these controllers that aren't
2: meant to be used as a plain HBA, if you just attach a drive and don't create a RAID volume out of it, it just won't show up to the OS. It's just an unassigned drive and you can't access it. And so you sometimes have to reboot the machine into the RAID BIOS and be like, okay, add that as a single disk, unredundant RAID and for each disk. Dell perk, we're looking at you. Yeah. And then that means if the drive fails and you pull it out and put a new one in, you now have to reboot to actually create this RAID volume to make it show up uh, in order to then do the in the VM. Not a huge deal, but it's just a bunch of extra work you wouldn't have had to do if you had a dumber controller. But especially for a home system or a learning system, you're totally fine to just go ahead and do it that way. It's like what we say about ECC RAM. It's like, it's always better to have ECC RAM, but don't let the lack
0: of it stop you from getting all the other advantages of ZFS. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. You can find me at JRSSnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.